Is there anyone in the world or in the United States actually working on this issue of depolarization, not just talking about it? There is, and she is here with us today. I found Diane Hessen through an article she wrote for the Boston Globe about undecided voters. Not much intro is needed here, and Diane is a great communicator and walks us through all that she's done, what she's doing today, and where she sees a light at the end of our very polarized tunnel. One quick announcement, we do now have the Patreon campaign going, which is a way for you guys to financially support the show if you want to. It starts at only $3 a month, and everybody who signs up will have access to a patron-only chat between you guys and me once a month, where we'll talk about the show or anything else you want to talk about. I'll take your recommendations, I'll answer your questions as best as I can, and I'll get feedback from my most dedicated listeners and friends. I'm really looking forward to that. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize, or there is a button that says become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. Here's Diane. So Diane, you have had quite a career, it would appear. Uh, can you just give us like a quick and dirty version of all the things that you've done? Sure. Oh, quick and dirty with how old I am. I guess um, the net on my career is that I'm a serial entrepreneur. Okay. Um, I've built a whole bunch of companies. I worked for a large company that I loved very early in my career, but I found myself to really tire of bureaucracy and uh, not like slow decisions and everything. And I fell in love with the idea of just building things. And the company that I built that became the largest that I was most passionate about is a company called Communispace. And the idea behind Communispace was that what we wanted to do, and we founded uh, the company in 2000, uh, what we wanted to do was disrupt market research. And of course, your listeners uh, will laugh when they hear this, but we had a theory that connecting with, and this was for consumers, that connecting with consumers at one point in time was not a great way to get insight. One point in time meaning mm. doing a poll, right? sending out a survey, doing a focus group or whatever. The whole one-shot nature of research was not doing a service uh, you know, for our clients because the world was changing so fast that maybe your opinion or your mood changes so much within the course of a day that if we just get you at that one point in time, um, it would not really give us the kind of information we wanted. So we built at the time a technology platform that allowed brands to understand consumers over time. Uh, rather than on a one-shot basis. And in the beginning, uh, everybody hated what we were doing. They were saying, this is not research. People get biased. You're building relationships with them. And we actually found that we were getting better insight because when people, when you build a trusted relationship with somebody, they're way more likely to tell you what they think. Yeah, interesting. And I see, I see the pushback of like, Hey, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the more you insert yourself into the situation, the less objective it's going to be. But then mm -hmm. if you're talking about advertising, that's assuming that you can get an objective answer from someone in the first place, which it sounds like you guys were unsatisfied with that assumption. So here's the thing. It, it's not as if we were trying to take over the research world. All we were trying to do was to say, if you've got data telling you what is going on, it's critical to understand why, the context within which people are saying that. And to do that, there are two factors that really help. One is to stay connected to them over time so that you can track what they're thinking. And secondly, as we all know, sometimes people are infinitely more honest online than they are you know, having a conversation uh, actually in person. You know, we've all been in situations in which we've said something online that we normally wouldn't say if we were actually in the room with someone. Right. And so what happened is we started working with a lot of major, major brands that ended up learning things that they never knew before about their consumers because of the technology that we have created. So that company's still around today, but what I learned uh, running that company for 14 years is a lot of what I used um, 
as I moved on to my project to try to understand voter research. Right. So before we move on to what you actually did for the Hillary campaign, uh, it strikes me that there's something very relatable between what you're saying and polling, for instance, prospective voters or likely voters or uh, even after the fact, you know, exit polling, is that we get these little snapshots, but they don't tell us much about why people do what they do. And maybe there's even a sense in which people put on a certain kind of a posture when they're being polled or when they're when they're doing, a, you know, a, a, not a quiz, but a survey. And that's interesting. Like, do you, can you talk <laughs> about that a little bit? Sure. Well, look, there's so many people out there now doing polls. You know, it's very, very difficult to find somebody, you know, in the United States that hasn't been polled or surveyed. And what happens is after a while, we just get weary. We get weary of the anonymous organization sending us something out saying, we want your feedback. Totally. Why do we get weary of it? Well, one is, it's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, um, think of website experience. You could write, gee, well, my website experience sucked. But, you know, I've told you this 14 times and you haven't fixed the, web, fixed the website. So I am not wasting my time giving you feedback anymore because it won't matter. Right. You know, that's the big reason. Sometimes people have learned that, gee, if I give someone an incentive, if I give them a coupon, if I give them a gift certificate, if I give them money, maybe then they'll respond. And there, the answer is people actually do respond, but they don't get more money for telling the truth. So they're more likely to respond quickly or just to say something that they think the other person will respect because the goal here is to get the incentive, you know, not necessarily to, you know, open your heart to someone. So, okay, how did the Hillary campaign reach out to you? What did they specifically ask you to do for them? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they reached out to me because I knew someone who was working on the campaign that knew that I had a long-term, more non-traditional research background and that there might be some super creative ways to try to understand voters. Um, the campaign had you know, a very impressive group of people doing research. And they also had certain categories where they were really covered. So for instance, um, you'd have to be crazy if you were working on the Hillary campaign last spring and you didn't have a big team trying to understand Bernie Sanders voters. Right. That was covered, et cetera. I actually raised the issue that undecided voters might be interesting because I was, I was shocked how many people were undecided. And a typical thing that I would hear from people is, I don't know, I don't like either candidate, or I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but I know that on election day, I'm going to walk into the voting booth holding my nose. You know, I heard this from a lot of people and I heard it from people just, you know, without tons of data, it just seemed like there were more people unhappy with their choices than ever before. And I thought that was a really, really interesting dynamic and they said, absolutely, that sounds really interesting. Let's go dig in. Great. So you're talking about being talking to people over time, right? Um, and you have this guy, George, who you kind of lead your article with in the Globe. Um, let's talk about what you found. Okay. George is your kind of centerpiece for the for the piece. He kind of runs through the whole article. Mm-hmm. Tell us about George. Well, here's the main thing to know about George, which is what I found um, out uh, by a lot of undecided voters, including undecided voters who ended up working, uh, who ended up voting for Trump. George is just a regular guy, nice, smart, um, taking care of his family, <laughs> interested in doing the right thing. Um, it was, in George's case, it, it was not his first time voting. He lived in an area that was largely Democratic. He had voted for Obama in 2008 and then for Romney in 2012 because he was, he was disappointed in Obama. And at that point, just his leadership style, he thought it would be interesting to get somebody who was a business person. Yeah. Where, did he, where did he live? He was, 
he lived in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Okay. And I think the reason that George was really compelling to me is that I thought most people, if they read about him, would nod their heads and say, this is a reasonable guy. Yeah. He was, um, he was not a huge fan of Hillary, and yet he was also not a huge fan of Trump. I mean, every time Trump would say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, the bus incident, the, you know, the gold star family incident and everything. I mean, he was just disgusted. Um, but he also had a whole bunch of issues with Hillary as a candidate, as well as just a lot of what he thought was the Democratic Party platform. And he was agonizing. He thought about voting for a third party candidate. Uh, he thought about doing a write-in. He thought for a very short period of time about not voting. Mm. But as I spoke to him, I thought most importantly, which is why I put him in the article, that his uh, frustration, his equivocation, his not knowing what to do was very representative of the 300 people that I was back and forth with on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like he's the kind of guy who holds maybe a more or less conservative worldview at like his base level, mm -hmm. but is very much think, trying to think clearly about his individual choices. He's not the kind of guy that the left could scapegoat as like a dumb Trump voter at, by any means. Yeah, I think that's true. So you mentioned 300 people. What was your actual method of doing this study? Well, I didn't have a big budget. So as opposed to using Communispace, which is now C-Space, I basically did the manual version of that. So I, in the month of June and July, mostly, actually, no, mostly July, June, July, and August of uh, last year, 2016, I had a 30-minute conversation with each of the 300 voters. Wow. So you can imagine how unexciting my life was. I mean, I was literally sitting in my office talking to, you know, voter after voter after voter. And I did those interviews personally. So the reason I did it personally is I just thought I'm a pretty good synthesizer. If I have all these conversations as I have them, the big themes about what's going on will pop into my head as totally. opposed to asking somebody else. The other reason is that this was the beginning of my building a relationship with them. So at the end of the interview, I'd say, this has been really, really interesting. So here's the deal. On a weekly basis now, I'm going to bug you. The goal is to have it take no more than three minutes a week. But I'm going to ask you every week how you're doing and what's up and what's happened in the last week that might have influenced your opinion one way or the other. Yeah. I will not judge you. I will not tell anybody who you are, how you're voting, anything like that. But, you know, I'm just super, super interested in the kinds of insights uh, that you can bring forward. And people, in for the most part, were really interested in doing it because everybody wanted to talk. And people were sick of talking to friends and having to lie or whisper or not say exactly how they felt because there was so much vitriol. Right. And you can imagine that going both ways. You can imagine, a, you know, a, someone in a conservative area being like, I really don't like Trump and I'm not sure about some of these Republican policies, but everybody I'm around is, or someone in a liberal area going, I, I'm not happy about Hillary. I, I think that she could lose, um, yeah. you know, whatever. And, and it's just, there's so much social pressure to toe the party line on, on both sides of the aisle. Absolutely. And, you know, you're really right, Dan, but, you know, people would literally be living in households where they had an agreement with their spouse that they just weren't going to talk politics. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, or with family members. So I think it was a catharsis in many ways for people to just know that once a week they'd have a way to say, look, don't tell anybody that I, anybody I said this, but when Hillary said X, Y, Z, it just made me nuts. That changed my mind or whatever. And I was just fascinated to see how things were shifting and, you know, the why behind how all of that happened. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, and, and remember here, 
This is not super scientific. I do not have the only truth on this. So I'm just telling you about <laughs> my data. And, yeah. if, and if they only had my data, it wouldn't be enough. But in the final weeks of the campaign, when Comey came out and said, um, you, you know, when he came out with uh, everything and the Hillary camp said, well, all of a sudden all the numbers shifted, it's Comey's fault. My data told me during that week that the impact of Comey was pretty slim, but also during that week, that's when there was an announcement that a lot of rates for Obamacare were going to go up. And I will tell you, I had a lot of voters say, oh my gosh, it's already so expensive. If the rates are going to go up more, I need to vote for the person that is going to repeal and replace Obamacare. So according to my voters... The Obamacare rate increase news that week had way more impact than the Comey news that week. And that was just because I thought that I was spending most of my time trying to understand why. Yeah. I thought that myself at the time. Uh, I thought that the Obamacare rate news item was like, this could be really bad. Yeah. I mean, certainly bad in Arizona. They kept using that as the example. I thought somebody's really smart here because if Arizona is, you know, turning into a swing state, the minute they say rates are going to go up over 100% in Arizona, Trump's got it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's can't. over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought that was, a, that was their Arizona strategy. But that, that announcement really gave people pause, much more so than the Comey stuff, just because everything related to um, Hillary seemed to be pretty much baked into the narrative. If you liked her, it was like, ugh, do we have to keep talking about this? And if you didn't like her, it just kind of reinforced uh, yeah. what you thought you already believed. Right, yeah. The, the emails and the Comey stuff, it probably didn't sway a whole lot of undecided voters. And interestingly enough, that's who you were talking to. And that was always the narrative in the press was, well, which one of these events is going to sway undecided voters? And like you said, you know, Trump's Access Hollywood tapes did have an effect on George and other undecided voters, but not so much the, oh, did Hillary bungle Benghazi? Because basically by, by 2016, if you had a strong view of Benghazi, you already had it. Yes, absolutely. So George articulates really clearly at one point in your article um, what Arlie Hochschild also found in her studies with Tea Partiers in Louisiana from her book Strangers in Their Own Land. I don't know if you've read that. I just finished it and found it fascinating. But it's this image that she kind of synthesizes as well. She did all these extended interviews. She kind of embedded herself in Louisiana for, I don't know, nine months or a year or something. And this is the image that she kind of came up with. She calls it the deep story of of the right. And the image is waiting in line for the American dream, feeling like it sure is taking a long time to get to the front of the line. And all the while seeing others cut in front of the line who have not paid their dues. Either they've cut through government help like welfare or they've cut through identity politics like LGBT people. And George sums up how he felt. I'm going to quote from your article. I'll quote George. Now I see my tax dollars going to handouts for others who don't want to work as hard as I did. And I can't afford my health care. Everyone is being taken care of but me. I feel left out, and it makes me feel that I want my country back, end quote. Uh, In the 300 people you talked to, how common was that point of view? You know, I think it was pretty common. The the, uh, place that I – the the part that I think was a little different is um, I spoke to a lot of people that had pretty much felt that they did achieve the American dream. I mean, it wasn't that they wanted more, but it was more just – principle. I mean, people, one woman, um, I remember one woman said to me, look, I'm doing really well now, but, uh, way, way back, you know, she talked about, um, how, you know, I burned my bra in the 1960s. I was a Democrat. I was a feminist, all of that. She said, but I got a job as a claims adjuster in an insurance company. And, I couldn't believe how many people were calling me and obviously trying to cheat the system. Huh. Say I got whiplash. They'd be asking for like $500, $5,000 or whatever. And I knew that they were fine. 
we get doctor reports and, you know, I mean, our, our policy was that we needed to reimburse these people, but I would say that one third of the people were trying to cheat the system. And we now have a set of policies that allows people that rewards people who are trying to cheat the system. So they didn't necessarily feel that they were waiting in line, waiting for the American dream. Right. They were just convinced that things were not fair. And you can imagine even with Arlie's, her image, right? Even if you've made it to the front of the line and some of the people that she interviews have, you know, they own a nice home near a lake. They have friends <laughs> over all the time. You, you know, like they've, they've sort of like, they own an RV, they can take vacations. They've, they've arrived where, you know, like a, a rural Louisiana wants to arrive or whatever, however you want to call it. But it doesn't change that deep story. Just because they got to the front, they still look back and see people cutting in front of their friends or their sons and daughters, right, who haven't gotten there yet. And it it's the same thing. So it's not – that's what I love about that image of hers. It's not really about grievance per se. I think a lot of times the left characterizes the right as selfish. They want to keep all their taxes and their money. They don't want to help the poor. But the right looks at it as – as you're saying, it's principle. It's like the Protestant work ethic. If you don't work, you don't eat. Get a freaking job if you want to be a part of American society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the 70s when I was in college, I was at um, Tufts University um, undergrad, and I took a philosophy course. And my final um, was we had to debate what was more important, compassion or fairness, and I don't even remember what I wrote on the exam. I don't remember the name of the professor. I don't remember what grade I got on the exam, but I remember that question. And people on the right believe that the liberals value compassion over fairness, that if they see someone who has nothing, they should let them cut the line. Yeah. And I think that a lot of liberals believe that conservatives, even those who have achieved the American dream, you know, are just unwilling to have a society that gives a chance to people who, you know, just aren't treated fairly. They don't believe that everyone's standing in the same line to begin with. Hmm. Do you think that that view of the left toward the right is accurate? Well, look. With the way that I've spent my time over the last six months, I think everybody has a point. Yeah. I really do. You know, I, I've been, this week I've been talking to a lot of um, white women, who, and I'll tell you a little bit in a second about how I've decided to continue the research. But, you know, there are a lot of women who are saying, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I've had babies. You know at 20 weeks whether you're pregnant. Yeah. You know, at, at at eight to twelve weeks, even if you haven't used something from the drugstore, you are like at the doctor's office saying, "I think I'm pregnant." You know, on the other hand, you know, you talk to people on the left who say, "I know a lot of women who pay the bare minimum for health care, who literally think they might be pregnant, but don't even get to the doctors until they're at week twenty five or week thirty because they just can't afford it. Hmm. So what do you do for those women? Now, you and I could sit for the rest of the time and talk about Planned Parenthood, but I think the idea is that people who are liberal don't believe that all that the line is the same for everybody, that for some reason, because of their circumstances, it already starts longer or shorter for some people. Than for others. And that's, that's um, awesome. I, I just, that's why I say to you, I think everybody's right. Yeah. I, when you said everybody has a point, I thought I might need to co-op that as the tagline for my show. <laughs> <laughs> Deep Polaris podcast. Everybody has a point. No, but that's a really good way of taking that imagery of the deep story uh, that Hoschild paints for the Tea Partiers and saying, a liberal perspective on that is there isn't just one line for the American dream. But of course, even when you do that, you still, I'm sure you still spoke to people who would say, well, 
great. That might be true, but I'm a white person in rural Indiana and my line has been long. My factory left and the, my house was foreclosed upon and nobody was prosecuted for it. Right. So it's kind of like it becomes an infinite number of lines really, or 360 million lines for each citizen that are slightly different. And it gets really hard. It gets really hard to adjudicate, well, how short does your line need to be for you to be giving up your resources to someone whose line is longer? Absolutely. And, you know, that's the core issue for it's the core issue for a lot of conservatives is, look, I feel bad for those people, but I just don't want to give them my tax dollars. Like, you know, I'd be the first person. Sometimes I'll hear a conservative say, you know, I'd be the first person to see, you know, I see a homeless person on the street. They're asking for money. I've given plenty of money when I've seen people who have less than I do. I just don't want the government telling me that I have to do it with my hard-earned tax dollars. Let's pivot to tax dollars and Trump's tax returns. Uh, You found that his tax returns held this interesting place in people's minds. They didn't really care if he paid taxes, and perhaps maybe he was even smart not to pay taxes, but it mattered to them if he was charitable, and you said it mattered even more if he was actually as rich as he claimed to be. Can Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that paragraph a bit? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, one of the things I found over time is, and you know, there's there's plenty that um, both sides have said that's true and not true and everything else. But I find that um, there is, uh, despite what Trump is saying, uh, people are really, really interested in his tax returns <laughs> hmm. uh, on both sides. Uh, and I think it's because they all have certain assumptions about what they would learn but in general, when uh, somebody said, gee, if we, heard, if we got Trump's tax returns, we'd find out that he didn't pay any taxes. And remember when Trump said, that's because I'm smart? Yeah, in the debate, yeah. Yeah, I, I think most people, certainly Trump voters said, yeah. Yeah. He is smart. I mean, I, Trump's, Trump is not the only person in the world, uh, nor the only corporation in the world that doesn't pay taxes. I mean, people have read about GE having, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tax attorneys on staff trying to get them not to pay taxes. Everybody knows, you know, there are all these rich people who park their money in the Cayman Islands. I mean, you'd hear all of that stuff. So people were okay with him not paying taxes. People weren't okay thinking, gee, the guy says he's a billionaire. What if he's worth way less? That would be interesting. People wanted to know about um, whether there were sleazy foreign connections that you might find out about in his taxes. And people also thought that it would be interesting to know what he really gave to charity. Was this somebody who had the kind of character where if he was worth all of that money, he was willing to give some of it up for people who had less than he did? It seems like that last thing is for sure not true about him. Yeah, well, look, we don't know. You know, what we know is that he raised a lot of money for a foundation that wasn't his money that he ended up giving away. But we don't really know. We don't know what he gave in taxes. I I think that the press has been unable to find major nonprofits who would say that Trump was a major contributor for them, but we don't really know. Yeah. Now, some of this is curiosity. Sometimes people are just super curious about his taxes enough to really want him to release them. Other times, you know, people were, uh, people just thought, wow, you know, I, I should know more about who this person is and he must be hiding something. You know, what's he hiding? What's he hiding? Or, you know, what is he afraid of? So I do hear some of that from time to time still. Speaking of which, what is this continued research that you're doing? You mentioned you've been talking with white women. Well, you know, what happened is after I wrote that op-ed and kind of put all of my research to bed uh, for the Clinton campaign, what happened is I had all these people reaching out to me. 
I mean, they talked about the research on CNN, on MDC, on MSNBC. It was talked about in the Wall Street Journal. Once it was in the Wall Street Journal, I had all these conservative bloggers uh, reaching out to me. So I thought, wow, there's so much interest in this. I'm not going to stop. Yeah. So what I did over the last six weeks is I decided to recruit a new group. I held on to some of the people from my original research, but this time I'm funding it on my own. So there's no... A Democratic or Republican organization that's funding what I'm doing. But nice. I did the same thing again. This time I recruited uh, 300 people. Who, I'm sorry, 150 Clinton voters and 150 Trump voters. I interviewed them each for a half hour. And now we're doing the same thing. They're in touch with me on a weekly basis. Can you tell us anything about this yet or are you keeping it close <laughs> to the chest? Well, I'm... I've just finished the interviews. I mean, if, if you have people who are listening to this podcast who are interested in being a part of this, I still have a few slots open, uh, especially if people, um, you know, if, especially if people are living in states where it was a little bit tricky to be, you know, where they had strong feelings, but it was tricky to be able to share their opinion with friends or family. Yeah. Um, but. Now, what I'm doing is I'm looking for how people are feeling about the current administration. I'm, on a weekly basis, I'm looking at whether people's opinions are shifting um, and why. And honestly, I know this sounds really idealistic, Dan, but I'm just trying to see if there's any way for us to find common ground. Oh, man, that sounds so idealistic that I don't recommend <laughs> anybody start a podcast or anything <laughs> like that trying to accomplish that goal. That would be a waste of time. Right. No, that, so yeah. I I think I need to be in touch with you uh, in the future about this because that is I'm I'm going to need to learn what you're learning and then try and put it to uh, put it to practice here on the show. But so that's okay. So give us a little some kind of a teaser here. What are you finding? Have you have you found any common ground yet? Have you are there particular things that Trump has done that have really impacted people or not impacted them as much? Mm-hmm. I would say right now, for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, Trump voters are happy. Uh, they believe that he is doing what he promised. They don't think that there are a lot of surprises, including the immigration ban, including the Supreme Court appointment, etc., that he is basically doing what he said he was going to do and that everybody should just shut up and let him do it and give him a chance. Right, yeah. And most of the Clinton voters think that it is Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, they believe that he is uh, destroying a lot of the things, well, actually, to use a famous phrase, they're just, he's destroying a lot of the things that made America great, that he's calling stuff fake news that, that's not fake, that he is... Um, you know, that, that he's got values and orders and a team that will be destructive to the country. And there's not a lot of coming together. I will say that I think most voters are more worried about the divisiveness in our country than they are about Trump. <laughs> Even on the Democratic side, I, I, I do have faith that at some point people are going to say, let's just Let's just stop and breathe. But, you know, they're not there right now. There's just, there's so much acrimony. Uh, and I think part of that is just because it's early days. Um, but, you know, I, I think Trump voters in general are willing to overlook some of the problems uh, because they just believe that, you know, he's, Somebody said to me yesterday, I, I've got to tell you, I know that this has been bungled a little, but I just feel safer with Trump. Hmm. You know, we're in a different world now. She said, I have a daughter who lives in a sanctuary city. I'm worried for her. And, you know, then it's so interesting, Dan, because you know what happens. You get a Clinton voter saying, wow, you know, I feel like I should move to a sanctuary city because that's where we're going to have people who are immigrants who feel welcome and who won't feel angry enough to you know, do something destructive to our city. Yeah, so interesting. I think people have the same data and just reach different conclusions. Yeah, I had a conversation with a friend just the other night who said 
that uh, he and his family were considering moving to, I live in Seattle, mm-hmm. and they were considering a job in Chicago. And one of the things that actually, they had initiated the process with the company before the election. And he said that one of the reasons they decided to stay is is that Trump won and they just felt like Seattle is the kind of place they would rather be during four years of a Trump presidency or possibly eight, you know, cause at least, you know, our, we had that Washington judge stand up to the travel <laughs> ban and, and you know, judge. Yeah. And our, and our mayor has been very clear about, you know, basically resisting as much as is possible. These, these kind of policies coming from the administration, which that doesn't, <laughs> You know, that there's a whole other issue there of like how long can a government at odds with itself survive? But regardless, in the short term, you know, he he just was like it was a major factor. It actually became a major factor in deciding to stay in Seattle. Yeah, you do hear that. I actually think that's really good. Look, one of the places where I think there might be common ground at some point is the importance of getting involved on a local level. Yeah. So think about it. You live in Seattle, you're a liberal, you voted for Clinton, Trump wins, and what do you say? You say, the world is going to fall apart, but at least I live in Seattle. Hmm. And what you do is you get more involved in local politics. You think about your city council, you think about your state representatives, your state senators or whatever, and you support them and you try to do what's right for the people who you know. The interesting thing to me is that's actually what conservatives want also. I mean, if you go back to Scalia, if you go back to the Federalist Papers, if you go back to a lot of that, a lot of Republican principles basically say, let's stop running this country on a centralized basis. Let's let the states figure out what should happen. Let's let the school districts make their own decisions about what ought to happen. So, um, you know, people who are energized by the issues that are going on for them locally. So this is really interesting. Up until at least the women's lib movement, you've got these national scale things that need to change, right? You need the Civil Rights Act to pass. You need the Voting Rights Act to pass. You need various tenets of women's liberation, like as much as we can, we need fair pay, equal pay for the same work, um, certain things about healthcare and contraception, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you're really stringently pro-choice, you know, it's legal now. So I wonder if this might be the first moment in, you know, 30 or 40 years where the left might go, okay, maybe we do make this more about individual states or communities because we want to live in communities that reflect our values. And and yeah, we would prefer if every poor person in every red state had access to all the stuff that they have in our blue state, but that just might be unrealistic. And at least we can say, hey, come to Washington. We will prove to you that this is a better way to do things. That's fascinating. Well, I think it's possible. Look, if you take what you just gave as an example, a typical Democratic Clinton voter will not, a woman, will not be happy leaving the decision about Planned Parenthood to the states. Right. Because they believe, and I'm one of these, that people need a safety net. Right. You know, that... It's really easy for me. You know, it's easy for your friend. You don't like Seattle? Move to Chicago. You don't like Chicago? Move to Seattle. But there are lots of people in this country that can't get out of where they live. I I, I share that view, and this is why I lean left, because I want a much stronger safety net for the most vulnerable people in every state. But I just wonder, it might be kind of an interesting, necessary compromise that the left just can't accomplish some of those goals, especially not with 32, 33 governors, mansions, and state legislatures in the GOP, the House, Senate, and the presidency, and now with Gorsuch on contentious issues, the Supreme Court. And the liberals may just have no choice but to 
act at a more smaller level rather than at the federal level. And maybe that opens up something. Maybe that kind of works. And there's a bit of a give and take there between left and right. It's funny because I just always think of states' rights as like connected to the Civil War. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. unfair, but what if states' rights is the right to provide health care to all poor women? I mean, that's, you know, that's all, that could also be a state Mm -hmm. right, for instance. Yeah. Um, It could be. By the way, I'm not sure that that's an area for common ground. It's just that what I'm trying to do right now is to find candidates for common ground. Totally. So for instance, I have a whole bunch of true-false questions at the end of each of my interviews about everything from, you know, true or false, was Obama born in the United States, all the way through to true or false, is climate change a real thing? And one of the reasons that I'm asking all these questions is, you know, what if the large proportion of my respondents said that they thought climate change was a real thing? Yeah. Um, and, and I got a lot of those. And there, I can't really give you conclusions now. And I certainly don't want to bias people who might speak with me. But, yeah. you know, I'm trying to add more and more questions uh, as the process goes on. So on a weekly basis, I might say to the people I interviewed, hi, everybody, how you doing? What are you thinking? What really struck you this week? And by the way, I'm just curious, how do you all respond to this particular issue? Right. Um, so that's a place where I can actually test things because right now everybody's pretty much getting in touch with me on a weekly basis. Sometimes somebody will write and say, I don't have anything this week, or I had a family crisis, talk to you next week. But it's fascinating to track people over time. I love this idea of candidates for common ground. I mean, one of the, one of the ones that I have been hoping for since I was old enough to realize I could hope for it is some kind of compromise on abortion where both sides agree that they would like to lower the number of abortions and they appeal to research and they find out the ways to lower abortions and they say, look, in the meanwhile, let's get some bipartisan support for some of these policies that will reduce them. And I just had a Michael Ware on the other day who was an aide for Obama from like 08 to 2012 And he said that there was such a plan and it almost got enacted. And for political reasons on both sides, it got scrapped. There was some reelection questions for Obama and then the pro-life contingent who was involved in it thought politically they couldn't be seen to be working with Obama after they had just villainized him for four years. Yeah. And my heart broke about that. Um, Not just because of, you know, I think very few people want more abortions. I mean, so it didn't, my heart didn't break just because of the additional abortions and the whatever would have been provided to young mothers and however adoption could have made, been made more streamlined, that my heart breaks for that. It also breaks for the prospects of things, if that's what happens, if you can even get something that should be so common sense, but because of the political entrenchment, we can't even move forward on it. That just does not bode well. So I, I thank you for doing some research and looking for candidates because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I, I don't think, by the way, that the abortion area is an area for common ground because there's too much emotion. Yeah. You know, so for instance, right now we have the lowest rate of abortions since the early 1970s. We got the lowest rate of unintended pregnancies. We've got a historically low teen pregnancy rate. Why is that? The reason for it is that there are organizations like Planned Parenthood that are helping women get better access to contraception, period. <laughs> you know, if you want to do what you said and get that number lower, what you do is you give people access to contraception. It's the primary business of Planned Parenthood. But the narrative around this is so full of emotion that they can't break through. I mean, the data is in on how you lower abortion rates. And it's not by doing legal stuff. It's by making sure that when people go to Planned Parenthood, someone gives them a reimbursement. I mean, it's not like there's a line item in the federal budget called Planned Parenthood. It's just a matter of 
whether the government helps people go, but it's all about giving women access to contraception. It, it fixes so many problems. So I think with all the data out there, if we haven't found common ground on that issue yet, I'm skeptical. But I do think that I think that things will show up. You know, I, I could give you a couple more guesses. I just yes, let's hear. Them. I don't have it in my data yet. Let's hear well, the guesses. Uh, you know, I think there will be common ground on Steve Bannon and his impact on the Trump administration. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the things are cracking a little bit right now, but I don't hear the most ardent Trump voters. I don't see them defending Bannon, hmm. for instance. I mean, you know, I, I think there are a lot of areas in which people can come together. And I think part of it is about conservative voters just taking a breath and being more reasonable. And I think part of it is about liberal voters taking a breath and being more reasonable and figuring out what they're going to stand for. And, you know, we're only in week, we're only in month one. We're only in month one. Yeah. So um, I, I would imagine that a few months from now, you know, some new things will show up. You know, we'll start to see whether the cabinet picks are effective. You know, we'll know more about foreign relations and in particular what's going on with Russia, which happens to be kind of the top of the news this week. Yeah. We'll, we'll understand more about what's going on with immigration and refugees and, you know, a lot of the other issues. So um, it, it, I think it'll be a little easier for people to start seeing what kinds of results we're getting. Yeah. Um, just just because I've learned through talking with my wife and many of my friends that I can't let abortion things go without at least speaking to them momentarily on the show because people do have <laughs> strong views. Let me just clarify that I think there are some very difficult ethical and legal questions around abortion itself. But I would agree with you that the data is very strong for contraception to reduce them. And that is the kind of thing that I'm hoping that the pro-life contingent can accept. I'm, I hope that someone who is truly pro-life would say, you know what? It is more important to me that a child not be aborted than that a teenager not have sex. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's clear, but it is hard for people, especially people who are very religious. But I, I think there is room there. And, and in fact, I would point to some, some surveys say as many as 30% of younger Democrats are pro-life, broadly speaking. And so they don't buy, they don't, and, and myself included, I'm, I'm basically morally pro-life. Like I think our, like philosophically, I don't think abortion should be easy to get, but logistically, I agree with many planks of the pro-choice position. And so I don't fit the narrative. I don't really buy the 1970s women's lib argument that abortion is about the patriarchy keeping women down. I don't think, I mean, that may have been true at one time. I imagine like the Mad Men era, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I'm not convinced by that argument. I'm very convinced by the data about sex, sex education and contraception, you know, so I, I wouldn't write it off yet. That's just my little, <laughs> that's my little pitch about abortion. Um, my worry about Bannon as a potential common ground is that it's just a little bit too politically obscure for maybe the average, like barely interested voter who sees a couple news articles a week, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. like, Oh, here's, here's a good question for you. How do you phrase your question to people about Bannon? Maybe that would be, that will help me see how you could get there. Yeah. Well, right now I'm not really asking people about Bannon. Okay. I'm just saying, I basically am saying to people, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on this week? What's on your mind and why? And, um, you know, on a scale of, I, I usually ask them to give me some kind of quantitative measure on how they're doing that I can track on a weekly basis. Um, if something came up with Bannon, I might say something like, uh, this week, 
Uh, one of the big news items was blah, blah, blah about Bannon. If you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, but I haven't really done that yet this round. I want to quote you again from your article. You said, If you'd asked me to describe a Trump voter last spring, I would have been largely wrong about their motivations, dreams, and even their values. Sure, there are extremists among them, but it was eye-opening to realize how legitimate the concerns of many are, and to realize that if I just listened hard, I would find I have more in common with the Georges of the world than I ever could have imagined. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about this more? I mean, you've obviously continued some of this research um, and that one of my questions for you was, how are you trying to accomplish this? Of course, you're continuing the research, <laughs> but more on a personal level, you know, how do you live into that truth that you and George do have quite a bit in common? What do you do just as an mm-hmm. individual person? Well, look, Dan, I think you're asking the zillion dollar question. I mean, this is a, this is a huge issue for our country and, I think in many ways, I'm like a lot of citizens out there. I am more worried about our divisiveness than I am about who is president, which, by the way, is saying a lot because, you know, my respondents know who I voted for. I'm not, you know, I'm, I worked on the Clinton campaign. So personally, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but I must say that People make so many assumptions about, quote, the other side. And I see this on all ends. I see people talking to me about, I mean, uh, I hear people who are liberals who voted for Clinton saying things about Trump voters like, I've got to tell you that at the end of the day, this is all misogyny. Uh, And they go into a big thing there, and I'm just thinking to myself, not true. Right. Um, They're all bigots. They're all, you know, they're all xenophobes, et cetera. They're not well read. I mean, I hear all this kind of stuff. And yet, I had a Trump voter this morning say, the socialist progressive left are undermining everything that Trump does. They're totally desperate and they're unable to debate intelligently anymore. And I don't think that's true either. Right. So, you know, you do hear a lot of that. You see a lot of people where I just feel like sometimes I want to take all 300 people that I'm talking to on a weekly basis, sit them down in a room, and figure out how to get them to talk to each other. Well, you can, <laughs> if you could point you know, them, I was going to say. It's, it's arrogant, and I, it's arrogant to get out there and say, why doesn't everybody just shut up and listen? Yeah, and also it would mess with your research as well. I know, I know, that's true. That's what do you want to do? You want to save these 300 people, or you want to find some <laughs> research that'll help millions? Exactly. Well, I so, the world, not 300. I um I notice this come up a lot when I talk to people and you know it's because I have a p- podcast called Depolarize and people know it but people will say sometimes in the same breath they'll say yeah I mean polarization and the divisiveness is really a major problem and then within 3 minutes they're giving me like a standard democrat line about how republicans don't want to give away their tax dollars and I'm I'm like okay are you noticing <laughs> You're, you're sort of doing exactly what you say we shouldn't do. And they don't, it, it's like second nature. The point just being, it's going to take, it seems to me, quite a bit of re-education for people to stop spouting their party lines about the other side. Do you have any ideas on how people can start to learn that? Well, ultimately, I think it's just like in business. I mean, it's all about leadership. Part of why we're divisive is that we have a divisive leader. Part of why we're divisive, and I'm trying to say this in as nonpartisan a way as possible, but part of why we're divisive is that at the top, we have a leader who is constantly bad-mouthing the other side. By the way, on the Democratic side, we got a bunch of people who are bad-mouthed. I mean, the people who are at the top 
are divisive. There aren't a lot of people right now at the top who are, other than I would say, you know, we need more John McCain type leaders. I'll just say that as a Democrat. We need people who truly do put their country before their party who are also at the very top. I do have hope in people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Of course, then when it comes to all these other appointments, they end up voting on party lines. But when people are brave enough, whether they are Republicans or Democrats, to just step off of the train and say, actually, in this particular situation, I don't agree with my party, or I'm going to walk to the other side of the aisle. I think those leaders will be really important. I think that Democrats should send money to people in their party who they believe are the voice of the future. But I think Democrats should also send money to John McCain and Lindsey Graham and say, thank you for having courage. And I think that conservatives should do the same. I think if they find a media person or a politician on the left that they believe is not spouting the traditional line, they ought to support them. And I think that that can start a trend. Yeah, that's really good. I love that. Okay, Diane, last last thing is I'm just going to give you a platform here. What would you like us to know? moving forward about how we can remove this divide? Well, look, the op-ed that I wrote got a lot of play, primarily because people thought it was fascinating that I found that when Hillary Clinton used the word deplorables, it had a huge impact on the way people thought about her. Yeah. I will tell you that one of the main reasons I wrote the op-ed was not about that. One of the main reasons I wrote the op-ed was that I started finding that most Trump voters aren't deplorables. Most Trump voters are good, interesting people trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And on the same side, there are lots of Trump voters out there that say horrible things about Democrats. Clinton voters, liberals, whatever, attribute to them values and beliefs that are just not true. And I think we all do it because, you know, we see somebody breaking a glass in a building out of a protest or setting something on fire and we go, oh, there they all go again. And the message I'd like to send is um, most American citizens are not like that. They're not breaking rules and angry and, you know, consciously bigoted, consciously irresponsible, consciously not trying to do the right thing. And I do think that if we can just uh, all meet each other halfway, it will make a huge difference. That's what I'm trying to get across and what I'm trying to figure out. Well, thank you for also reminding my listeners why I started the podcast in exactly the same words I I would have used. (laughs) Well, we are birds of a feather, Diane, and that makes me feel very happy that you are doing this work and hopeful. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. I'm going to link to your Globe piece in the show notes on depolarizedpodcast.com, but how else can people find you, follow you on Twitter, anything else like that? Yeah, um, Twitter is easiest, I guess. I'm just um, exactly my name, Diane Hessen. D i a n e h e s s a n. Yes, and uh, you know, actually, if people are interested in being part of the research, yeah, um, a lot of people have just. Um, if you just follow me on Twitter, and then I'll just uh, write me a note and say, uh, Diane, I'm interested in the research and I'll follow you back and, you know, we can figure it out from there. Then it will take away a lot of the admin from you, Dan. Yeah. Okay, good. So people reach out directly to Diane. If you want to be, they have, there's a few spots left in this ongoing conversation. And if you do do that, let me know as well. Maybe we get a little segment going on this show. I don't know. I'm who, who, who's to say what will work. But, um, Diane, thank you so much for your time and your continued work on this, on this issue. All right. My pleasure. 
I mean, how good was that? Next week, we're going to be talking with author, professor, and cultural critic David Dark, a man who writes prose but speaks in poetry. And yes, I came up with that, but I think it's pretty accurate. We'll be talking about the role of anxiety, despair, and worry in the run-up to the election, as well as in the wake of its results, and much more. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for checking out the Patreon at patreon.com slash depolarize. You can find us at depolarizepodcast.com. Find me on Twitter at DanKOCH. And join the Facebook discussion group for Depolarize Podcast. See you next week.